0: Tonight's topic, Facing Forward, Lessons from Past Transformations for Jews in the 21st Century. I will not introduce you tonight. Is that okay? I assume on the last program, they either know who you are or are in the wrong place. Okay, with that, I'd like to welcome Professor Dr. Hartley Hartley-Lachter to the lecture. There are, in fact, people I'd like to thank. There are so many familiar faces in this room at this point. I feel like it's a room full of new friends. And this past month has really been uh, such a, a great opportunity for me. I've learned a lot from all of you, and it's, it's, it's really been a tremendously uh, a precious experience for me. Um, I'd like to thank, though, some people who, uh, in particular, have made my time here possible uh, my hosts, first of all. So starting with the frogs at Ari's house, um, who took care of me when I first got here. And Ari had the nerve to go to a family bar mitzvah um, in Detroit. But uh, since then, Ari and Amy have also hosted me several times. Thank you for your your, your kindness and hospitality. Um, also, Joanna and Aaron Rosemiller, as well as Coco and Nilla the dogs, they, they uh, took me for a week um, so I thank them for bringing in this itinerant scholar to their homes. And then for the, the longest period of time, um, uh, Yael, Gaila, Segal, and Yael uh, Wilner have been my, my gracious Mish, hosts. Mish. And I don't like I would forget Mish Mish. I haven't <laughs> forgotten him. But they have been incredibly, incredibly uh, generous in opening up their home to the CSP scholar and uh, it, it has been a pleasure there. Um, so, so thank you to the Wilners and, and, and to the, the senior Wilners. I extend the, 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 the family-wide uh, appreciation. But of course, Mish Mish the dog at the Wilners house has been very important interlocutor for me over the past few weeks. And, and in fact, most, most of my talks have been formulated largely in dialogue <laughs> with Mish Mish. Um, and he, uh, he has had thoughtful comments and, and, and re- re- really probing critique that has made these talks possible. Uh, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank him uh, with, with, with my whole heart. Um, and of course, all of the CSP board members and volunteers, I see you working hard. And, and I appreciate that very much. Um, as cor- in, in addition to that, the, my, my many social escorts, uh, people who took me to lunch, Dinner, entertainment, museums, sailing trips, uh, the the trip to Hershey Felder's uh, performance—all of these were really enjoyable, and I appreciate everything that all of you have done. I live in a small community, and I know what volunteer efforts are like. And in many ways, being in a small community has has some benefits. The contributions that are needed from people mean that. You live in a community where someone needs you to lane Torah on Saturday. Um, Someone needs you to participate in the Hever kadisha to help bury those who have passed. There's all sorts of ways in which being part of a small community means being willing to contribute to the organizations around you and to the Jewish life of the community in which you live, because otherwise it doesn't happen. And there's something very special about that, Um, but also something really exhausting. And I actually thought before I came here that I was a pretty good volunteer, that I pulled my weight. I serve on the Federation Board and on the Synagogue Board, and my wife is very, very active on the Day School Executive Board. Um, I, thought, I thought I was a good citizen, and now I can't think that anymore um, because I came to Orange County, and I found out that I don't really do anything, and that so many more things could happen if only I had the energy and, and the sheer generosity of volunteer spirit of Ari Katz. Um, I now compare myself to this new standard. Please let us give him a round of applause. If anyone ever deserved it, it's Ari Katz. Um, So thank you. Thank you for for ruining my my (laughs) self-perception. But I will go home with a renewed energy and commitment to volunteering in my own community and trying to do at least a little bit of what you've managed to do here, which is just truly astounding and impressive. So as I believe I pointed out in a previous talk, Yogi Berra once commented that predictions are tricky, especially with regard to the future. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I embrace that wholeheartedly. I usually talk about the Middle Ages as a medievalist. Um, things that happened about 800 years ago feel like sort of right right in my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm comfortable talking about that. On occasion, I will talk about modernity and the conditions of modernity. And I'll occasionally get to the question of contemporary Jewish society. But the contemporary world is... You know, it's, it's hard to see. It's hard to see what's going on. I, I'd, I'd rather be in an archive with manuscripts and think about something that happened centuries ago. Um, and speaking about the future, that as a policy I, I avoid. So tonight I will violate my own best practice and not exactly make predictions. That I, I would avoid. I think that making predictions, um, especially when they're recorded, tend to <laughs> tends to lead to all kinds of bad things. But... I want to think about how some of the past examples of of ruptures, revolutions, and revisions in Jewish history provide both instructive examples for contemporary Jewish communities, as well as cautionary tales. So I want to bring together a lot of the various strands of things that we've talked about in different conversations and think about how that helps us consider something about the future questions that we'll be facing uh, and that will continue to be facing Jewish communities uh, in, in North America and around the world in the 21st century. One thing to note is that every period, really every moment in Jewish history combines a combination of continuity and change. So if we could go back in time, there's one very interesting and very consistent, I believe, continuity. That is, that if you just randomly pick some moment in history, 1440 in North Africa, and and you could sort of get in your time machine and go back and start talking to Jews, one thing that they will probably consistently say is, oi, this generation is in some serious decline. It's not like it used to be. Every generation seems to think that its generation is uniquely poised on the the, the precipice of disaster. We're always worried that we're about to die out, that things are really not as good as they were in some sort of golden age that people sort of wistfully harken back to. And and the concern is that the Jewish community is falling apart in one form or another. Um, This is an anxiety, but it, it can't be an anxiety about an actual decline because we're still here. We're still here and still anxiously worrying about our imminent demise. So it obviously is reflective of something that is part of how people think about change. That when a person lives in, uh, especially a traditional culture, traditional cultures actually are very, very dynamic and often in flux. But that experience of flux, that experience of change, does evoke tremendous anxieties. Um, this is part of the reason I think as people talk about the 21st century, there's a lot of dark predictions about what will happen to American Jewry in the 21st century. We're worried about what will happen to the the size of the population, internal threats from Jews who are assimilating out of the community, external threats. These are very much on our minds. And while I don't want to minimize those threats, when I think about the 21st century, I actually tend to feel pretty upbeat. Um, Though there are challenges facing 21st century Jewish communities, I think the world Jewish community does precedent for a number of, of really important things that are worth bearing in mind. One is unprecedented diversity. Jewish communities today have so many options, and this is a result of modern society itself, that Jews are able to find a home within a Jewish community because there are so many kinds of Jewish community and so many kinds of Jewish expression. So, that diversity is actually a, a powerful, powerful strength. And it's something that we have in much greater, richer variety than previous generations of Jewish communities were fortunate to have. Another is that pluralistic societies provide remarkable acceptance of Jews and Jewish communities in a way that we haven't really seen before um, in quite quite this fashion. So the United States, especially after the 1950s and 60s, has been a place where, where Jewish life has been possible, has been accepted, and has been able to grow in a whole rich variety of ways. That is, is is a really unique moment. We're privileged to live in this moment. The the old adage ah only in America, or as I would add, as a Canadian, also Canada. Um, <laughs> right. I made a promise to mention Canada in every talk, and I think I think I've managed it. We'll have to ask Mike. He's he's heard every single one. Um, and outside of talks, of course, also Canada manages to come up. But these are societies in which that that. Openness to a variety of identities has, has been a very important asset for Jews. And so this, this creates a, a set of opportunities from which the Jewish community has benefited and from which I think it will benefit moving forward in the 21st century. But we should also bear in mind that attrition, that is people selecting out of the community, that this is normal. Traditional communities, religious communities, have rates of attrition. And that this this shouldn't be shocking. The, the existence of attrition is not necessarily a sign of a mortal flaw in, in our community. It's actually a sign, in many ways, a, an ironic symptom of acceptance. Jews attrit out of Jewish communities in circumstances where there is a society willing to accept them willing to accept them either as converts or, as we see in contemporary culture, willing to accept them as citizens of a society where they need not choose to affiliate with their Jewish identity. That very opportunity is actually a sign of another facet of that society that is an opportunity for Judaism, the chance for Jews to voluntarily voluntarily affiliate with Judaism in the fashion that they choose to. I think that that will overall be a much stronger asset for the community than it will be a liability. These new expressions of Judaism, however, that happen in the contemporary world are often not recognized in their own time. And when we look historically at some of the the revolutions and changes, paradigm shifts that have occurred in Jewish history, the moment where it's happening, where it's really the present, tends not to recognize that change for the important phenomenon that we, with the wisdom of hindsight, are able to recognize it to be. People either don't perceive it, or they perceive it and regard it with a degree of hostility. But over time, we can see how important many of these changes are. So the process of change is hard to see in one's own moment, So a person can be living in a period of tremendous, rich Jewish diversity and not see that right in front of them. But perhaps if they were to then write a history of their community or their region 50 or 75 years later, this would become visible. So we should bear in mind that the present is often hard to see. This is why I like the Middle Ages. (laughs) This month we've had an opportunity then to consider some of the ways that Judaism as we know it is the result of all kinds of shifts and transformations. First, of course, exile, the first and second temples being destroyed, plus many other forms of exile has led to an experience of unsettled migrational history. And in the talk on Jewish migrations and Jewish exiles and expulsions, the capacity to function within the conditions of exile and then the conditions of expulsion and migration, this has been incredibly important. This is a national and a religious skill that Jews have developed that has served Jewish communities very, very well in the 20th and then moving into the 21st centuries. Many of us don't live near where we were born. And I think that Jewish communities will continue to move around and the capacity for Jewish life, always to reinvent itself in new places and to welcome new people to those places where Jewish lives are being built, this is something that I think will put Jews in good stead in an increasingly globalized and mobile economy in the 21st century. Creative constructions of community from the Middle Ages are part of how people do this. And in the talk on the development of modern Judaism out of the the charitable organizations of the Middle Ages, I argued that these kinds of volunteer organizations that made everything from Jewish education to Jewish healthcare to Jewish knowledge and the dissemination of Jewish books possible in the Middle Ages, this is something that will continue to be really important in the 21st century as well. There's a strong blueprint for this within Jewish communities, and I think that that will be something that will serve Jewish communities well moving into the future. But we've also seen bold reformulations of Judaism itself. Um, some examples include, of course, one of my favorites, Kabbalah in the Middle Ages. This was a radical transformation, one that was very public, as we talked about on the very first night, but one that has had a very important role in how Jews have imagined and reimagined themselves in many periods of Jewish history since then, up to and including today. But philosophy was another option one that became less powerful publicly, but another option that emerged from the Middle Ages. And who doesn't know Maimonides? We talked about Maimonides and how he was both a controversial character, but also a celebrated individual as well, despite the fact that his his program was was quite revolutionary and originally opposed by many people. Messianic movements are found in every generation, but of course, especially the movement of Shabtai Tzvi. These also have led to disruptions and changes in Jewish life and in conceptions of Judaism itself that have had important, sometimes even unintentional, positive impact on subsequent Jewish communities. Then the Enlightenment and Emancipation. This created what, as I mentioned in last night's talk, Judaism as a religion as we know it, creating a society in which religion is a private part of people's individual lives, this is a construct of modernity. In the Middle Ages, the Jews who I studied didn't think of Judaism as their religion. They don't even have that word. They're Jews. They live in Jewish communities. They aren't subject to the same laws as the people around them. Their communities provide everything for them uh, from education and health care to burial services to, as well, the, the court system, the rabbinic court system that settled all of their disputes, except for disputes where they're having some sort of a legal case against or with a non-Jew. These communities were part of their entire identity. The development of modernity created a new, a new arrangement, one in which Jews were offered the opportunity to become citizens of the broader society, but at the same time, they did this at a certain cost of Jewish autonomy. That creation of Judaism as a religion, it, it could have been a, a disastrous shift in Jewish life, it could have led to substantial problems. I can imagine how that could happen. But what we see is instead that opportunity becomes a chance for creative reconceptualization, reimagining of what Judaism is. Something that happens within the voluntarily created communal organizations of synagogues, of schools, of informal organizations, of the CSP. This becomes part of how Jews find space for themselves once the space that they had traditionally occupied was radically altered. Another alternative, an alternative that seeks not to make maximal use of integration and citizenship in the modern world are movements like Hasidism and Haredi Judaism. This is another form of Jewish expression that engages the modern world, but by opting out of at least parts of what modernity has to offer. As a result, Jews living in the modern world have a lot of options and a lot of ways of expressing their Judaism, a lot of different forms of Judaism that they see around them, some of which they might like very much, others which they don't like very much. Let's not forget that in a world of diversity, part of how you know you see a diverse world is there are other Jews with whom you disagree. Uh, So if you right now feel very encouraged because you can call a lot of options to mind, that's a sign of a community that has been able to proliferate a whole variety of conceptions of what Jewishness means. And it means they have the opportunity within the broader cultural historical reality in which they live where they're able to be everything from reform or renewal or secular Jews to Haredi or Hasidic or other kinds of Jews. We then of course also in modernity see another revolution, Zionism and nationalism, creating a whole set of opportunities and a whole set of challenges as well. And then of course, secular and cultural Judaism. Many Jews have an identity that is connected to Jewishness, but in a secular rather than religious way. This is something rendered possible by modernity. It creates a mode of connection between Jewish people and their community, even if they don't feel connected to religious identities. This isn't a sign of the weakening of a Jewish self-conception in the modern world. I think it's a sign of tremendous robust creation of options for Jewish identities in the context of modernity. So elements like these, these reflect shifts in Jewish life and shifts in the idea of what Judaism is. And they continue to be relevant for many Jews today, but I would argue they're relevant in, in new ways. We live in a period of opportunity for religious diversity But this means that it's a period where the autonomous individual, rather than the collective community, is is the most important characteristic, the most important element of what builds religious communities today. We live in a transactional marketplace, where things take place through an individual making a choice, selecting something, and then, of course, acquiring it by paying for it. The basic unit of creativity in in a free market economy um, is free choices selected by autonomous individuals. The result is that in our contemporary, really postmodern world, hybrid religious identities become possible, and no one can anticipate where this process will go, and it, and no one can stop such a process. It's part of the broader culture in which Jews live, where unique autonomous individuals make choices, construct identities of of their own creation. And that's led, of course, to a tremendous variety and a variety of many combinations that are generated by Jews today. Uh, We find, for instance, there are people who are engaged in secular Hasidism. We find Jewish Buddhists or Jubus, Uh, Jews who belong to multiple congregations and and are able to, to seamlessly move between them or Jews who migrate from one form of Judaism to another over the course of their lives and they're able to freely make these selections because living in a contemporary reality, especially in a modern Western secular democracy, renders that possible. In fact, it renders it impossible to imagine anything else. We also find the development of many independent minyanim in the 21st century, these independent congregations that are not closely affiliated with any existing denomination of Judaism. Here, it would seem that they're falling between the cracks of existing denominations, so they're creating their own new Jewish reality. And where that leads, I don't know. I want to avoid predictions. But it seems like this is an important facet of contemporary Judaism. And there are many, many more examples of unique combinations of multiple elements that go into creating Jewish identities, as many as there are unique individuals. And that complexity up close might look disorienting or even hard to see. But I think the story that we'll be telling about the forms of Judaism that are being generated in our own reality right now when we have 20 or 30 years distance from it to look back and analyze it, I don't think it will be a bleak narrative of decline. I think it will be a new moment where new things were happening. But the last question is both an opportunity and a challenge, which is denominational structures. For a long period, but especially for the major part of the late 19th and the 20th centuries, the denominations of Judaism, Reform, conservative, reconstructionist, and orthodox, these ideas about what kinds of Judaism there were, they they generally served a certain purpose, just as synagogues served a certain purpose. People needed to belong to some kind of house of worship. It was just considered what people did. If you move into a suburb, part of how you found your place in the world was you belonged, you joined a, a, a house of worship of some kind. A church, a synagogue, this, is what, this was what Americans did. Um, synagogues are now facing new kinds of challenges as the culture shifts. Um, we no longer live in a society where synagogue affiliation serves the same social need that it filled 30, 40, or 50 years ago. Generation X and millennial Jews are much more transactional, meaning that they engage with a thing they need, they acquire it, they buy it, but they choose it as an individual. This is part of how the broader culture works. They're not joiners. They're not joining organizations and paying dues. They tend to identify something that's a need within their life, and they go out and engage in a transaction that is similar to an economic transaction within the broader context of capitalism in order to meet that need. And they do so as individuals rather than as Obligated members of a community. Um, there's the famous quote from the late 12th century Sefer Hasidim, uh, the book of the pious, uh, written, or at least attributed to um, Judah the pious. And in it, uh, there's a passage that says, that warns the reader, when you move to a new town, observe carefully how the young people in that town act, referring to the non Jews who live in that town. Because the way in which they act, in exactly and precisely that way will your own children act, and this, this is not something new. We find that in every generation, people—they don't understand young kids these days. I, I think that all the time. College students—they're now quite baffling to me with their social media and all kinds of things they do. I, kids these days—I really don't understand them. Um, and the wide gauge earrings—I I can't understand what they were thinking. I, so you know, I often talk about this generation gap that I feel with people who are you know, only 20 years younger than me, but generations change, and people tend to reflect the culture that is around them. Um, in in this case, the culture that people are living in today is a transactional, individual, free and open culture, where young people, if they join something, they join Netflix. They, they don't join <laughs> religious organizations in the same way. Um, But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they aren't interested in Judaism and that they're not engaged with it. They are. They're very creative. We find all sorts of new developments of Judaism. I mean, we see Juicy juicy Magazine. We see uh, all sorts of uh, conceptions of Judaism on social media. In fact, there's so many. I don't want to list them because I would probably look incredibly outdated. Because I would mention something that's, I don't know, four years old and is is really old. They're doing something new. They're doing it now. And that engagement is taking place in, in areas where we just don't typically look. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. If we see the declining roles of synagogues, sometimes that's because people move. Populations don't stay still in the 21st century. And if we see that Jews aren't, or at least aren't yet, returning to communities for the sorts of things that we might anticipate them, that that doesn't mean they're disengaged. It might mean that they're differently engaged, that they're living in a different culture, that they're acting the way the young people here act. And that's not a new problem. That's a very, very old one. And perhaps we can take some comfort, at least in the fact that that phenomenon has been around for so long. I think engaging a younger generation in the 21st century will require being open to new ideas and possibly, it will require emphasizing some old ones as well. But I'll, I'll come back to that in a bit. Previous ruptions and revolutions, ruptures and revolutions provide both inspiration and caution. So one lesson from the past, don't be afraid if your kids engage Judaism differently than you do. We should expect that they will. Also, most major shifts in Jewish history, and especially in Judaism, have always been accompanied by tremendous opposition. Hasidism brought with it the Mitnagdim, which we talked about in the Hasidut lecture, the lecture on the development of Hasidism. The Mitnagdim, those who oppose. They didn't actually call themselves that. The Hasidim called themselves that because the Hasidim understood how to frame the debate in their contemporary discourse. They were very engaged with their contemporary world and they were good at PR. And by formulating this idea that they are the opposers, they characterized the opposition to Hasidism as people who simply were resistant. And in fact, in some ways they were. We always find that the development of new religious forms is accompanied by resistance. In the Enlightenment, the Jews who engaged the Enlightenment, the Maskilim, they were opposed by more traditional Jews. Secular Zionists were resisted by religious authorities at first. And what we find is that this resistance really doesn't produce anything. At least it doesn't produce the positive result that they're looking for, which is to end this new form of Judaism that they feel threatened by. It, in fact, doesn't really accomplish that at all, if anything, it adds to the thing that they resist. Past transformations provide the lesson that change, even when it's accompanied by opposition, can't be stopped. It can simply be observed and understood. It's part of how Jewish communities move forward. There's another lesson um, that I think is important when considering past forms of transformation, which is that to change really means to build. And building requires education. So a better educated Jewish population can meet its moment better. And this is a, this is a serious challenge uh, in the 21st century, and I don't have simple solutions for it. Jewish day schools, Jewish summer camps, Jewish immersion trips abroad to Israel and elsewhere, and I think some of the elsewhere trips are also very, very interesting. These are tremendous opportunities for experience, Day schools in particular are a chance for students to feel educated and for students to feel enfranchised as Jews. I always sort of was jealous in college of my colleagues, my friends who had had Jewish day school education because they never felt like a fraud. They could complain about this or that about Judaism and they knew what they were talking about. And I felt like I was playing catch up when I was in my late teens because my, my friends who had been to day school knew so many things that I didn't know. And it was because they went to a day school, maybe one like this one. Um, this is a beautiful day school, by the way, I just have to point out. It's, it's really gorgeous. In, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, we have a small school with less than 100 kids, and there are no palm trees anywhere <laughs> near it. This place is it's, it's really beautiful. But day schools are, are something else, and that is that they're really expensive. And this is meeting up with a demographic shift and challenge in just how modern society works. Many young professionals don't make enough, early enough in their career to be able to provide a Jewish day school education for their kids. They might make enough over the course of their entire life, but not right at the moment, maybe in their early 30s when they have two or three or four kids to send to day school at twenty-three thousand dollars a piece, this is a real problem, and Jewish philanthropy is going to have to find a way to meet this challenge. I believe it will be vital for meeting this challenge, but it's it's a serious question, and I'm I'm not I'm not really sure what the 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 happy answer to that one is. I, I believe that in the twenty-first century, day school education and other forms of Jewish education will be really really important. For creating a base of creative, engaged young Jews to reinvent the Judaism of their moment, which is the the obligation really of, of every of every generation, this is how we can create the tools for that. But it's there are there are cost barriers that are substantial. Um, of course, we we need a lot more from our schools than they needed. Providing Jewish education is something that Jewish communities have always done, but it's not just a a cheder and and a guy there teaching some kids how to memorize chumash and rashi. It's a a very different phenomenon. We need beautiful buildings and we need our kids to have a lot of different talents because they have to have the right record to get into the right college and and they they need the right training for the SAT and there's all sorts of things, enrichment and other kinds of things that we demand of a private school for students in, in the 21st century. And it's wise to do so. Part of the security that we can offer to kids in the 21st century is an excellent education. It is the best predictor of future income and of the capacity to be able to live in the places where Jews live in the United States. We don't live evenly distributed across the United States. We live in little pockets, little places, not always in cheap ones. And education matters. education it's, it's good that people are offering the highest quality education that they can, but that means day schools are now doing an awful lot, an awful lot that they didn't do 50 or 100 years ago. It makes them expensive. There's a reason why they cost a lot, but there's also a reason why they're needed. Finding a way to bridge that gap is going to be important. There's also a change that's happening in just the daily lives of um, young-ish Jewish people, and I might put myself in this demographic. Uh, which is shifts in gender dynamics and in work patterns, namely that there are different responsibilities now that are shared more evenly, not perfectly, but shared more evenly within households, including not only household tasks and the running of a household and the raising of children, but also of work. and two couples, two, both members of a couple, raising children and both working, this has become very common, when in fact it used to be much, much less common. What this means is that young Jewish couples are stressed out and don't have any time, especially when they're worried about paying for day school. Right? <laughs> they're doing all of these things at once. Um, and, and these shifts in, in, in work and life, they're also accompanied by shifts in the, with, that come with the creation of this word called parenting. Do any of you who raised kids uh, in, in in an earlier period, did you use the word parenting? No, they, you did. Anyone here not use the word parenting? No, there that, that wasn't a word. Um, I went. I had a, a student who uh, she she audited a lot of my classes, but she said she raised her kids in the '50s and early '60s, and I I was I forget. I came into class and I had a lot of baby baby spit up all over my shirt and I was saying how I had changed the baby and then I was trying to run out to class but I, was, I had fed her and she spit up all over my shirt and there just was no time and so I had to teach with, um, with a lot of baby barf on my shirt and uh, so I just explained it to the class and this woman she laughed she said my, my husband never changed any diapers I said you mean he didn't like change them right before work she said no he, he didn't do that I, I was astounded I mean that was like saying he didn't Sleep or drink water. Like how? How could that be possible? And and she said that wasn't done. That there was a different division of, of labor. But that these 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 different ways of balancing households create challenges and opportunities. I think there's a reason why um, we don't have a lot of, of young couples with young children who are here tonight. Um, although there are there are a couple aberrations uh, in the in the crowd Um, and and there are there are good reasons for that people are pressed for time and it limits how much and in what way they can engage their broader Jewish community right not all of them can be Ari Katz who somehow has been doing this for now going on 15 years Um, this causes I think another form of barrier that that separates people from their broader community. They need things from their community, but they're also limited in ways that they can access them. Um, in fact, if this, were, this talk were being given at home in Allentown, I'm not even sure I would be able to be at the talk. <laughs> because I had to have responsibilities. Uh, and and that, that's, that's going to be a challenge. Um, another point that's worth noticing from past ruptures and revolutions um, is the fact that the idea of Jews and Judaism is unfortunately considered important to non-Jews. And I say unfortunately because Jews don't really need other people to be thinking about them in order for us to have a vibrant community. And this has at times had tragic consequences. While Jews would be happy to be ignored so that they can just sort of do their own thing, other people are imagining Jews and sometimes imagining Jews in nefarious ways. Now, at other times, this has led to consequences that are simply fascinating. So in the talk on the role of Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah in the development of Mormonism. I mean, who saw that one coming, right? It's not something that we would anticipate. But if we think about the role that Jews, Jewish access to revelation, and the idea of Jewish secrets and traditions has for non-Jews, and in particular for Christian Protestants after the Enlightenment, it's not that surprising, actually, because Jews are present as a player in the drama of Christian and Muslim religious identity and in a way that Christians and Muslims are not present in how Jews and the practice of Judaism and the construction of Jewish identity is created. And this, this can be a complex uh, mixed blessing. So it does mean that it's worth remembering that on the one hand, hatred of Jews or anti-Semitism isn't really about Jews. It's it's about a way of imagining Jews in a foreign culture. But on the other hand, that means that the love of Jews or philo-Semitism also isn't really about Jews. In both cases, this is about something internal to a non-Jewish cultural reality. So philo-semitism, just like anti-semitism, is not necessarily what it appears, and it's, it's not something that is a direct result of Jews and Jewish life in the public sphere. So Christian Zionism today is a great example of this. Um, this may be an interesting relationship of convenience, but the thinking that informs Jewish Zionism is very, very different from the thinking that informs Christian Zionism. And these relationships we should bear in mind are not under Jewish control. Jews cannot determine the ways in which they are being constructed in the minds of others. We can't control that. And, and we, at best, I think what we can do is, is be aware of that as a phenomenon. Another re- lesson then that comes from past religious shifts Um, and one that we saw in the series on the development of religious fundamentalism, is that religious coercion doesn't work. Religious coercion seems sort of tempting sometimes. If only we could control what our own community does, then we wouldn't be having any of these problems. And that temptation is always deceptive. Um, It will not help to try to coerce people into, in order to enrich their Judaism in a broader environment in which people are functioning as free individuals. This will only lead to difficulty, but it's reflective of a tension that is part of contemporary society that we discussed, the development of fundamentalism, the dream of living in a society where law is determined not by the democratic production of legislation, but rather by having a divine law imposed upon the broader society through the function of the state. This idea of living in a theocracy rather than a secular democracy. The idea if only God's will was at the basis of our society, there would be no injustice, there would be no crime. And I think most importantly for how people imagine this, they feel like their sense of meaning in the world would be confirmed in this very powerful way. They wish to see the state reflect their own religious identity. But the dream of theocracy is always impossible because, as we mentioned in that series, religions are very diverse phenomena. We really can't find a large portion of a religious community that agrees with one particular interpretation of that religion. There are hundreds, thousands of competing interpretations circulating in any given religious community at any given time or place. Therefore, the establishment of a theocracy always means fascism. It always means using force to impose a narrow religious identity on a very broad spectrum of people. And that is a danger. So it's a danger Jews don't face except as a consequence of being attendant to other people's theocracies around the world as people sort of clamor for theocracies as what is fortunately so far only a minority voice. Uh, But in Israel, this will continue to be a challenge where the development of the Rabbinut, of the, the chief Israeli rabbinate, does have some substantial powers to limit the freedoms of Jews living in Israel with regard to matters of marriage, divorce, family law, immigration, and identity status as a Jew that has been and I think will continue to be a flashpoint of controversy within the Jewish community. The development of the state has been really uh, an amazing phenomenon in the 20th century. But as we move into the 21st, fighting over who has the power to have their particular form of Judaism imposed upon the state, I think will be a very difficult battle. Another dream of totalizing solutions to Jewish reality that we discussed this month was messianism, the dream of messianic redemption. Rather than finding a way to cope with the Jewish condition, the messianic dream reflects a desire for total transformation of Jewish reality that will somehow solve all problems. And in some cases, as we discussed, transform Judaism in a very fundamental way. Messianic dreams are a kind of rebellion against existing Jewish life, dreaming about replacing it with a different vision of Judaism. Fundamentalism and messianism, however, both lead to disappointment, and the messianic movement of Shabtai Tzvi is a great example of this, which, in short, he was a major messianic figure in the mid-1600s, Jews from around the world, substantial numbers of them, maybe even a majority, embraced Shabtai Tzvi as the Messiah. He went to meet with the Sultan of Turkey to take reign over the land of Israel. And by the end of the meeting, he converted to Islam. So it didn't go very well. Um, and and it was a just a, a sort of larger version of what always happens with the dream of the transformation that can be brought with the establishment of a messianic reign or of a theocratic rule. It always ends in disappointment. And what people are drawn to is the anticipation of it. And the reality, the reality is always, always not what people had hoped for. So this is, this is a danger and one that any period in Jewish history has to watch out for, longing too hard for the complete solution. Um, on the other hand, it's worth noting That fundamentalism and messianism, in their various forms, pre-modern and modern, indicate something that we should pay attention to, which is that in contemporary society, there is something like a malaise, a quiet but powerful discontentment at work. And it seems that secular democratic capitalism, in our society, it buys its freedom at a cost. And that cost is that the broader society, and especially the state, doesn't offer people meaning. Instead, it offers people the freedom to go and construct their own meaning. And that sounds good, but it leads to a tremendous proliferation of options, which some people find very disorienting. And in many of the Jewish ruptures and revolutions of the past that we've studied, there's always been some combination of this harmony with the broader culture and a sort of resistance to the cultural logic of the moment in which Jews are living. That's another tension in the history of Jewish change, of embracing the surrounding society and its values, and then resisting other elements of that same society. And this resistance to the broader culture is something that I want to think about for a moment tonight. The contemporary world um, is only one example of where Jews had to face an open society, a place where suddenly new Jewish options were possible. I want to return for a moment to something that we discussed on the first night and in various talks in the interim, which is medieval Spain and the development of Kabbalah, my favorite thing. See, I knew I would get back to the Middle Ages at some point. Kabbalah developed in Spain in the region of Castile, which had recently been reconquered by the Christian kings. It was a frontier region. They needed lots of Jews in small communities to help restart the economy. And in that sense, the Jewish individual was free, or perhaps another way of putting it was adrift, They were not subject to special restrictive laws from the king. They were really given, in some cases, a 10-year tax break by moving in. They had rights and privileges that were similar to their Christian counterparts. And they were free of the more restrictive, more powerful rabbinic authority over in cities like Barcelona, in regions like Catalonia and Aragon. In Castile, they were able to function in the ways that they wanted. They were able to read their own Judaism, or to opt out of it. And there's a lot of evidence that Jews stopped practicing Judaism. They didn't start stop affiliating with the Jewish community, but they stopped practicing the law. And that reality seems to have driven many Kabbalists to write the texts that they did. And they composed their texts not, as we see in the contemporary world, part of a discourse of rights and privileges, We live in a world where the independent individual wants to have things given to them. We have demands of the state. We want our rights protected. We want our privileges granted. In the medieval world, people thought much more in terms of responsibilities, of one's obligations to others. And it's within that context that Kabbalah provides its strategy for encouraging Jews to remain connected to Judaism and to practice halakha. the question was then for the Kabbalists: What does it mean to practice the law? And this is where they engage in this fundamental shift um, of how to imagine halakha. Is they argued what I've mentioned? Scholars use the word *theurgy*. They argued that when Jews practice the law, they impact the, the divine realm, the realm of the ten *sfirot* or ten emanations, bringing the light of *Ein Sof*, the essence of God, down into the world. They argue that literally the cosmos itself would cease to exist if Jews didn't practice Judaism. And this very powerful idea about what is the impact of the practice of Jewish law, this seems to have been a strategy that Kabbalists had for talking about the meaning associated with Judaism. And it seems to have been pretty successful. But that power is depicted by the Kabbalists as a double-edged sword. Empowerment brings with it an anxiety of responsibility and that that anxiety of what will happen if a person wields their power incorrectly. This is part of how Kabbalah describes the power of Jews as well. It's evocative of an idea in altered form advanced by Michel Foucault, the famous French anthropologist who died in the 1980s who described the power of the modern world as functioning kind of like a particular form of prison developed by Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century and 19th century um, called a panopticon. And the panopticon was a central prison or a circular prison was designed to answer the problem, how do you control minute by minute the actions of your prisoners if you have hundreds of prisoners and only a few guards? How do you do this? Many pre-modern prisons didn't care. They were dungeons. They didn't really care what prisoners were doing. They were locked up. But in the development of a more modern sensibility about prisons, where they want to control every individual and reform them, the idea was that in the panopticon, you could have a central guard tower with a circular prison of many tiers, many stories tall, with cells that were open to this central guard tower. At any moment that prisoners could be under surveillance, and that it would be through surveillance that people could be controlled. Not because they were being coerced at every moment physically by the guards. There's only a few guards in the middle with walkways to be able to get to every tier of the prison very quickly. It was by the anxiety of knowing that they were being watched. As Foucault notes, this is a metaphor for the modern world in which visibility, as he puts it, is a trap. The fear of being watched is what causes people to self-regulate. So the guards really didn't have to do anything other than sit there and maybe be watching. In fact, in the original panopticon, people were hidden behind a sort of slatted series of blinds, at least the guards were, so that no one could could know if they were being watched. And that anxiety meant they, they weren't certain what would happen if they misbehaved, and so they were able to be controlled. Kabbalah functions in a similar but still very different way. The individual isn't functioning under what I would call the Santa Claus theory, where God can always see when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake. It's actually a much more powerful assertion about what Jewish actions mean. The argument is that Jews wield divine power in the world, and that when they wield that power badly, they cause terrible things to happen. It's an anxiety of responsibility. It's a sense that Jewish actions matter and the opportunity provided by doing the right thing and sustaining the cosmos is coupled together with the negative consequences of doing the wrong thing and bringing destruction into the world. In the Zohar there's a passage where um the the text describes what happens to a person who engages in a a misinterpretation of the law. The Zohar puts it that a person, citing Isaiah 51, 17, say to Zion, you are my people, ami, meaning you are with me, imi, becoming my partner. And just as I have made heaven and earth by speaking, as it says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, Psalms 33, 6, so too do you. Happy are those who engage in Torah, creation of the world, is the consequence of interpretation of the Torah. It's a radical and really emphatic assertion about the power of what happens as Jews act. But the passage goes on to describe the negative consequences of studying Torah incorrectly. It says that, quote, one who is unaccustomed to the mysteries of the Torah and innovates words he does not understand then creates, as the text goes on to say, a distorted heaven, or a world of chaos, which has the effect of, quote, killing thousands and myriads. So be careful when you study Torah. According to this passage, terrible things can happen. But for the medieval imagination that emerges from this period, Jews are partners with God in creating, sustaining, and nourishing the world. In the talk on the notion of divine incarnation, we talked about how Kabbalists emphasized the divine nature of the soul and the power of Jewish actions by virtue of having such a Jewish soul. And there's the powerful image that Abraham was like a partner with God and it was as though God says, I have a garden that I tend, but now you, by observing my law, you tend my garden for me. They are the ones who take care of the divine garden, who perform divine acts in the world. And this sense of of what it means to perform Judaism argues that it's a a way of doing the divine service of tending the garden of the cosmos. So it's within that context that Kabbalah is able to really, I think, reaffirm Judaism in the Middle Ages. Now this leads me to speculate, which is always a dangerous thing to do, but it leads me to speculate that this past transformation might have something important to teach us about the 21st century, which is that it's important to engage and resist the broader culture, and that perhaps the resistance that people today are looking for within the context of freedom, within the context of a more service-oriented, transactional, autonomous individual society, people are looking for the opportunity to be obligated that people might, to put it differently, they might need the opportunity to be needed. And that while people do need freedom, they do need the chance to make a contribution and to give back. And Judaism today can offer that. When I was in my early 20s, I I would move to New York and I was in a community in Riverdale. Um, That's actually where I met the famous Mark Michael. but unlike him, uh, I joined the Hatzala ambulance crew, and they, they needed people to be volunteer EMTs. So I took the EMT class, and I, I worked as a volunteer EMT. I was a little afraid of it at first, actually. I thought it might be kind of traumatic. And it was, actually, it was wonderful. It was a great opportunity to help people, people I didn't know, but people who called the hotline and, and needed help. And that felt like a powerful mitzvah to me. It was, a, it was a, a, a great opportunity, and it also gave lots of funny stories. Um, I found that we would go to the, the apartment of an older couple, and we'd be helping, I remember, multiple times, not just once, uh, a cr- group of a few of us in our young 20s, um, mostly men, would would go to help help someone up. I remember one woman uh, were asking all of us if we were married and if we were available because her granddaughter in Manhattan, she, she has her number here, she really wanted, we're like, well, you have a pretty bad broken leg. We really think we should focus on your medical attention right now. And she says, well, you could call her. Don't tell her you got your number from me, but you could call her, which I, th- I thought was adorable. So multiple times people tried to set us up while well, we had while well, we had lights and sirens going, the uh, the shidduch opportunities were there. Um, and I also remember once we went to a woman's kitchen where she had fallen and, and uh, broken her hip, um, which is a pretty bad injury, but she, she was urging us. She said, you're young boys, why don't you eat something? We're already here in the kitchen. She said, I just made muffins, and you should have some. And, and we were like, well, we, we really should go, because broke your hip and she said please they're very good I, I'm telling you they're, they're excellent and I think that to keep her happy we actually did take the muffins and they, they were really good um, and that that was a that, that was a really that was a that was a, a pleasure during the, that period um, I, I'll feel commi- connected to that community but in particular I'll feel connected to that community not because of things that they did for me but because of the opportunities I had to do things for other people moving to Allentown um, it was very different from living in the Upper West Side, where no one really needed me for anything. So I could show up at Minyan or not; and no one would know. I could go to synagogues on Saturday, where the whole demographic of the synagogue was, you know, Jewish graduate students in their twenties. Right? Like that was a, there were there were multiple competing Minyanim with that demographic. Um, so that it almost felt like I didn't really matter there. Um, and then I, I moved to. Allentown, Pennsylvania, and suddenly in this small place, I I did matter and all kinds of volunteer opportunities were not just made available, but they were needed and I've I've actually found it really a, a resistance to the broader culture to be in a place where a person's efforts are needed and one of the most surprising kinds of opportunities to contribute that I've come across is, is participating in the Hevra Kedisha, or in the Burial Society, um, which also I was a little afraid of at first, but they said, you're an EMT, come on, you're, this shouldn't freak you out too much. Um, so I, I became involved in that, and now I find when I get the call, it doesn't matter where or when it is, I'll always go. And all of the other people, and it's a broad range of people you wouldn't expect who participate in the Hevra Kedisha, they all feel the same way that there's something really unique, something really special about the chance to do something for someone else that all of us will one day need, but where they can't pay you back. The rabbinic tradition, of course, says this is what makes the highest form of charity. Charity for the dead is something where it is outside of the economy of exchange. That person can't do anything for you in return. And that is actually a powerful, powerful experience I think because it provides an opportunity to step outside of the system of relationships that are primarily transactional and do something for someone else because they're part of a Jewish community, you're part of a Jewish community, you might not even know them, but it's something they need and it's something you can provide. It's possible that this is something that Jewish tradition can offer Jews in the 21st century. And while it's necessary for our communities to be mindful of the ways that we can meet other people's needs, it's also necessary to think about what it is that might resist our culture. And the chance to be needed and to make a contribution might be that type of contribution. So in the 21st century, I think we'll see that change will happen in ways that are unanticipated, ways that are hard to recognize at first, And that are consistent in many ways with other changes in Jewish history um, created by regular Jewish communities. Now, these transformations up close might seem very banal. They might look like Jews getting together and creating the CSP or creating any number of volunteer organizations. But from even a short distance, I think these changes can be quite miraculous. After this past month, I've had an example of how Jews can create exciting new forms of community and by getting together and sharing knowledge together, create a rich Jewish experience. If Orange County is a microcosm of the broader Jewish community, I feel hopeful for the future, for sure. The past month has been a tremendous pleasure for me, and I want to thank all of you for sharing it with me. Thank you very much. So I guess, do we have a little time for Q&A? We have a few Q&As. A few Q&As. There are any? Q's and A's. or So Some. So who told me that, that there was a rabbi at a rabbinical conference and they referred to the question answer period as the answer and answer? <laughs> 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 that, that was great, I thought that was really funny. Yeah, Alita. Hi, can you clarify your comment earlier that um, anti-Semitism
1: is can be seen not as just hatred, not as
0: hatred of the Jews, but as a way of
1: making sense of a foreign entity
0: within the context of Christianity or Islam. Um, I think what I was trying to say there is that anti-Semitism is not a reaction to real Jews. Anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism are functions of imaginary Jews in the minds of other people, constructed by other cultures. So, therefore, when you said, I thought you said that. Um, can't control the ways we're being um, constructed in the minds of these others, mm-hmm. and therefore we, we can't
1: really resist or fight anti-Semitism. I don't know if that's what you meant, but can't we do that by making ourselves known, making ourselves real to those people, so that we are no longer just a
0: fabrication, but they know us. Now. The the more real Jews become, I think the generally the less hated they are. Though I. I can't say that I have a huge amount of empirical evidence to substantiate that. But the efforts of some groups like the, the ADL, like Mike's involved with, that, that's very good because it helps mitigate the problems of anti-Semitism. But the existence of these impulses is the result of things that Jews can't control and is not the result of how Jews act. I really don't think it's that Jews act this way and then they are reacted to in the following way. Jews are already present not as real human beings, but as imagined symbolic placeholders in the minds of of Christians and of Muslims and of others where it's already there as something that we can't really control. But we can just be mindful of and aware of the fact that it's there. It's not a problem to be solved, but rather to be managed. Yes? Can you explain if we have chokma and we think so highly of ourselves, in terms of
1: our wisdom, our general smarts, how is it that we accept the idea that we can be a theocracy in Israel and haven't learned from the past? Based on what you said, that it doesn't work, that it's doomed for failure,
0: or learn from the present? Um, it's yeah, it's it's inevitable. That it will lead to tensions, and <clears throat> that will you any theocracy always involves a very small portion of a very broad spectrum composing uh, seeking to control and impose their their will their their religious view onto a majority of people who don 't accept it for whatever reason because they 're on this side of the spectrum or that side of the spectrum. Um, that strikes me as an historical truth <laughs> that this is inevitable. Um, but it's it's one of the challenges facing Israel today. Um, there, there's a whole complicated history to this that we talked about in one class. That was about the development of the Israeli rabbinate in the context of thinking about dreams of theocracy in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, it's going it's going to be a challenge that will affect the the, the community in Israel and will also affect the non-Jew the the non-Israeli Israeli Jewish community because of the way in which the Small percentage, the small part of the Jewish spectrum in Israel that controls that part of the state, um, will be increasingly distanced from, and will seek to distance itself from the Jewish community in North America and around the world. I wish I had some good solution for that, but it's it's there. It's a reality. It's something that we're going to continue to have to think about. Yes. Would you care to comment on the president? I'm
1: not sure if it's the president of France. Or Statement that if the Jew, if Jewish people, if the Jews leave France, France will more or less cease to be France, as, as it was designed after the uh, was
0: it the uh, period where they were the or after the revolution? Yeah, I think the prime minister said that, and I think he's imagining basically France is inconceivable without its Jewish population. And I would guess that, and this is partially connected to last night's talk, that what he's implying is that the the notion of the universal rights of man um, in, in France after the revolution was so important that they extended citizenship to Jews, and they were the first in the European continent to do that. And the idea that anyone, even people of different identities, could become part of The nation and serve as full-fledged citizens of the nation, which has had a very imperfect trajectory of development in European nation-states. But the the idea of that is very central to the conception of the French Republic. Jews were the first most important internal indigenous other that had to be accommodated within the, the, the French Republic. And so I think they see that And I think it's fair to see that as a very important kind of founding step in the creation of a pluralistic national democracy in France. Yes, Mr. Romain, Doc.
1: I want to go back to your notion of the secular Jew, uh, which by the way, there's a group here in Orange County that practices that. I want an incident that happened to me with my teacher and friend, Rabbi Harvey Goldschider, which I dare to tell him that the importance of Shavuot for me in Israel was the fact that the lifeguards appeared on the beach in Tel Aviv and I could go swimming.
0: That was the day when lifeguards began. Gave,
1: of course, he gave me a look. But, uh, but I don't think I was wrong. If, I, if there is... If Israel in that respect yes I know about the other groups but in Israel creates a secular Jew they're saying I'm a Jew this land is the land of my uh, forefathers and whatever I want to do here that's okay.
0: And I think that that's What's different in, in the 20th and 21st centuries is that now there's a place where people can acknowledge and call that what it is. I don't think secularity, meaning people who culturally identify with Judaism, but were essentially uninterested in the religious aspect of Judaism, I don't think that's a new thing. I think that that's always been a very important facet of Jewish communities. But it wasn't always possible to call it that. Right? We didn't have a word for it. And it wasn't publicly socially acceptable. Whereas now people actually can go to the beach when they want to, and there's no one really to stop them until the rabbi changes the rules about that. But uh, there, there's the, the, this opportunity is a, an opportunity that's actually a shift in the discourse. I don't think it's a shift in the reality. I think that that reality was there and was, was just sort of manifest differently or hidden um, or suppressed, but I, I think it was also present. And that, that's part of what has made the 21st century uh, inheritor of this rich legacy that was opened up by the 20th century. New ways of being Jewish have been generated. Those will be important assets for Jews engaging new circumstances in the 21st century as well. We have time for uh, one more question. Oh, yeah. Yes? Well, <clears throat> I have a formula for perfect world peace.
1: All that, that should be, to be good. good. <laughs> All that has to is, is that Everybody, give up diversity and individuality and think
0: and act exactly as I do. <laughs> <laughs> right, diversity always comes with traumas. Diversity always comes with um, these shocks to the system that creates tensions. And those tensions, I think, are part of the richness that Jewish life will engage with in the 21st century. We've been good at it for a long time. I don't think we're going to stop now. Thank you. Thank you.